My guest today on the From the Heart podcast is Lisa Gable. Lisa has served under four U.S. presidents, two governors. She's counseled Fortune 500 CEOs and represented global public and private partnerships and nonprofits with an end goal of moving organizations to higher levels of performance, bipartisan in nature. She has brought together political parties, corporate competitors, and disparate nations to foster quality leadership, diplomacy, and results that better society and create sustainable partnerships and profitable business models. Called by the Wall Street Journal, committed to the facilitation of success. Lisa was appointed the first female U.S. Commissioner General to the 2005 World Expo in Japan and held the rank of ambassador. She was a U.S. delegate to the United Nations Commission of the status, on the status of women in 2007, a commissioner of the White House Fellows Commission from 2002 to 2004, vice chair of the U.S. Department of Defense Advisory Committee on Women in the Services from 1994 to 95, directly advising the Joint Chiefs of Secret of the Se and the Secretary of Defense and Deputy Associate Director of Presidential Personnel, the White House in 1987 to 89. Her gubernatorial appointments include the Governor's Economic Development and Job Creation Commission for Virginia in 2010, and board member of the California State Summer School of the Arts from 97 to 2002. Her new book, Turnaround, is out now in bookstores and online everywhere. And I'm so excited for you to sit back and enjoy my conversation with Lisa Gable. This From the Heart podcast is presented by Orange Kiwi Consulting. The three most challenging transitions owners face, namely scale, sale, and succession, can often result in costly and confusing journeys. But the good news is it doesn't need to be that way. At Orange Kiwi, we help our clients succeed where others have failed by coming alongside them to help them navigate the challenges others simply aren't able to. We understand how to help you avoid that costly and confusing journey that comes with realizing the results that you really want. Visit our website today at orangekiwillc.com and use the code HLG2021 to book a complimentary 30-minute consultation and find out for yourself how we can help you gain greater clarity, confidence, and control while experiencing less stress and more satisfaction. Well, great. Well, thanks so much for having me today. I'm thrilled to have an opportunity to talk about my book, Turnaround, which came out on Tuesday. And one reason why I wrote the book and a little bit of background um, on me is that I love solving complex problems. And that's the theme through everything that I've done, which is solving complexity and using the manufacturing processes I learned at Intel Corporation, but incorporating those with the art of diplomacy that I worked, uh, learned in the Reagan White House and also the State Department. Turnaround for me right now, I, I'm a family business consultant. I work with family businesses, mostly throughout Southern California, but really all over the country. And now with, with COVID and Zoom, the opportunity to serve family businesses around the world. I'd say turnaround is a topic that couldn't be hotter than it is today because so many companies have just been you know, hemorrhaging because of all of this. What, um, when you think about turnaround right now, not just the book, but the process, with some of these family businesses or companies in general that have really been suffering in the last 18 months, what just, it's an open kind of essay question, if you yeah. will, but what comes to mind for you when you think about what those companies could focus on now as things start to shift? Well, I think any business is going through the same process right now is that 
you have to come back to why does this business exist? What was our core competency? What was the reason we started it? And I think what occurs during you know good economic times is we have more financial flexibility to follow different passion projects, sure. or perhaps we add something to our business, or we've taken on a different partnership. What do you visualize? What do you want it to look like? Okay, so you want it to look like this. Now what we need to do is go and audit everything that we're doing and line that audited material up against our perfect world vision. And what that does is it enables us to go through a process of understanding where we may have veered off course, where we may have taken in expenses, what's costing us more. Sometimes cost is financial, but also cost can be the amount of time it takes us to do something. And so is there a certain activity that we've gotten involved with that on a baseline level, it doesn't look too expensive, but when we analyze all that is required Required for us to achieve that particular deliverable, there's cost in that. And right now, as you're managing complexity, you got to get things off your plate. I, I did a, a discussion this morning with a group, um, a book club in Helsinki, Finland, of all places. Nice. And they asked me, well, how does this pertain to our personal lives? And what I pointed out is even on a personal basis, we have to make decisions. I had a, my husband got very ill. Um, he was diagnosed with a malignant tumor. Uh, at the point I had just adopted our daughter, we had adopted her and 10, she was only 10 months old wow. and he was starting a company and the VC money was coming into his account the day he was on the operating table, taking out this massive tumor. He ended up with seven operations in two years. And so, and I had my own business in Silicon Valley and we had to make determinations of ranking and rating stuff in our lives. And that's what we have to do in COVID right now. You're gonna rank and rate things. You can't do everything. You've got to decide what's your core competency. What's that thing that's gonna kill you? What do you need to focus on? And then everything else needs to go away. Yeah, that's interesting because I had that conversation with a client just the other day and, and we, we've talked about, you know, the, I, I hate to call it this, the blessings of COVID because, you know, we know what the destruction and, and everything has been, but they were saying the same thing that it's forced them to prioritize and what they're hoping is that they will take this, this new vision or this new focus in their business and in their personal lives and really reprioritize what's most important. I think we've gotten lost a lot in the minutia of things that, you know, getting getting weighed down in the things that were unimportant. It sounds like what you're saying. So we're really, you know, in crisis, we tend to look at the things that are most critical and the other things kind of fall by the wayside a little bit. So, yeah, that's fascinating. It is. And one of my uh, partners at General Mills, so we had a relationship with General Mills and another job that I had, she would always call them the distractions. And I just thought that was so perfect because they are distractions. They're these other things that are taking up time, taking up resources, causing angst, and life shouldn't be that hard. I mean, if you're struggling too much, then perhaps what you're doing isn't the right thing for this point in time, this moment in time. And, and within the complexity of COVID, we are talking about a unique moment in time. There's so many variables. I mean, whether it's the supply chain, the cost of energy, uh, geopolitical dynamics that are going on right now, that's a lot of variables. So you've got to get rid of as many of those that you can personally control. What's been the biggest lessons that you've learned as you look back on, you know, let's wind the clock back to March of 2020, which is kind of that that tipping point when the world went crazy. What have you learned about you that you hope will go forward with you when we are looking back on this little snapshot, as you mentioned, you know, 10 years from now, this is what I learned. This is what I still do because of what I learned. Anything come to mind? 
Well, I have to laugh because my husband and I have had uh, different homes in different locations because the two of us have traveled, telecommuted, done everything. And so for 25 years of marriage, we've never been together this much. Yeah. And the good news is we celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary during COVID and we really like each other. We like each other. My wife and I are doing the same. We just hit 28 during all this and same thing. It's like, wow, we really are enjoying this time together. Meals together and going to the grocery store together and everything. It's pretty awesome. Having meals, you know, binge watching weird programs, comparing yeah. notes with friends. We've never had that. We've always been performing. We've both been on stage. We've had dinners. We've had formality, you know, and, and we haven't had that point of relaxation. Um, but I, I think, you know, again, since I've been through a moment in my life that required me to have such amazing focus, it's a little easier for me because I, I learned this trick 23 years ago which is when anything starts to go awry, I become hyper-focused. And with COVID, that was something that I did. On a personal level, I exercised more. And so swim or I bike, I would do something. And so that was actually a nice attribute is I got healthier. Awesome. Good for you. That's great. Yeah. So you didn't do the COVID-19 where everybody gained 19 pounds like they talk about, right? No, I, I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. What are you seeing in the work that you're doing? I, obviously, you had time to finish Turnaround in the book and you're now promoting and it's out there. What yeah. are you seeing? Is there a common denominator that you're seeing maybe in some of these companies that either you've been involved with in the Turnaround or Turnarounds that you've seen, especially in this last year and a half? Again, well, going back to that prioritizing and that hyper-focus yeah. is probably big. Sure. So I'm currently the CEO of one of the organizations I turned around. I was brought into FAIR, which is the world's largest NGO focused on food allergy research and education. And that was an 83% restructure. And what was interesting about it is that we, uh, we did the 83% restructure. When I started, there was an endowment, but our operating budget was actually in the red. And so we had to raise $75 million. We raised $75 million in the first 18 months in addition to the restructure that we were doing. And we were hot, we were on it, right? Like we came through hell and we're moving forward and we were traveling nonstop January, February, March of 2020 was awesome for us. Everything that we planned, all the big changes that we'd made, we thought we would be raising $100 million uh, very quickly. And we were on path to do that. We had brought together industry, the organization had never had partnerships with industry. We brought together seven companies on March 12th. I had met with them all at JP Morgan Healthcare Conference in February, and then we called a call. We're all going to invest in pre-competitive infrastructure. It's going to be awesome. We're taking this disease forward. And we had the meeting, and they all attended. And because we had Europeans and people from other parts of the world, the meeting was from 6.30 to 8.30 at night in our offices. And then we all looked at each other, and it was like, well, um, pack up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we did. I, I did not go back into my office and literally the world shut down on March 13th, which also happens to be my birthday. So I will always remember that day of perpetuity. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you we had to hit the pause button on a number of things. The good news for us is um, what was surprising is we had access to individuals that we'd never been able to coordinate our calendars with. And so on March 16th, I had a call from a, a venture capitalist who's made lots of money with children with food allergies. And we were able to do a deal with him between March 16th and May 16th. So essentially over a very short window of time, we crafted this very large uh, research project 
because everybody was at home. And right. so it allowed us to actually accelerate our investment in the area of prevention because we could reach him. Another person that called me out of the blue, I get this message um, in my email, literally in the subject line. It said, hi, I'm Michael Milken. Can you talk tomorrow? Wow. I've been trying to meet with him for two and a half years. Yep. And, uh, and so, uh, in fact, I'm coming out to LA in two weeks because I'll be um, coming out to the Milken Conference. And so there were opportunities in COVID and, and our ability to execute on those meant that we got rid of stuff really, really fast. We're like, okay, we've got to get rid of this, got to get rid of that. We can't do this. We can't do that. We can't do this. Boom, these opportunities are in front of us. We've been wanting to do them. They're part of our strategic plan. And so we powered our way through and just started thinking really, really differently about how we engaged. Yeah, it's interesting. I've had conversations. That, that's that's fascinating. You're right. I've had I, before COVID, I think I had done eight podcasts. I've done 64 more since because of the advent, not the advent, but the, the usage of all this technology that we have always had, but now we understand how to use it. I've had this conversation and I think I know how you're going to answer it. Go back. It's March 1st, 2020. And there's a switch and you can flip the switch and everything in the world that happened, everything in the country, everything in your community, your family, your personal and professional life happens if you flip the switch or doesn't if you don't. Um, keeping in mind, obviously, the sensitivity of the fact that our world has been through a lot and a lot of right. people a lot of loss. I've been a little surprised by some of the answers I've heard. As you think back about that question, what are your thoughts? You flip well, the switch or you don't? You know, obviously, I wouldn't flip the switch because. Um, the fact that I had just come out of the 18 months of the restructuring and I was ready to zoom forward. Yeah. Uh, and I really wish I could. But what was nice about it is that I was scheduled to travel seven months solidly with only one week at home. Wow. And the year prior during the turnaround and to raise all the money that we raised, I traveled 18 Sundays in a row. And I was worn out. I was tired. And to some degree, being able to reassess and redesign all of our deliverables, and we've, we've, we've been very successful at meeting our goals despite everything that's gone on. We've had our hiccups like everybody else has, but being able to do that without the physical toll is truly the nicest gift I've ever had. And, um, you know, I've been traveling my whole life. I, right. When I did my job in Japan, I traveled to Japan 15 times in 18 months, you know, I'm, 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 I'm worn out. I'm tired. Yeah. So that's it was like nice. going up to New York from DC. That's a, that's a whole different story there. Yeah, absolutely. I went to Vietnam. Yeah. We got back from Vietnam on a business trip, December 1st of 2019. And that wiped me out for about a month. I can only imagine what it's like to go to that side of the world that frequently. I don't snap back as much as I used to. I used to, we used to, when plane tickets during the Reagan administration were $300 between Dulles Airport and the UK, and we were so close to everybody in the Thatcher administration. We're all so young. I was 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. Yeah. Of course, oh, you want to go to a party? Sure, we'll come for the weekend. We don't need sleep. Well, I need sleep now. Yeah, exactly. We don't have the energy we had, right? We're about the same age. I think we identified that before we started out. So, so you talked about fair, the food allergy research and education. I have food allergies. I can't eat dairy and there's other things as well. So I'm obviously, and it's relatively new for me. I just yeah. probably in the last three to four years is when it's really become apparent that there's certain things that I just can't eat. What drew you to that? And what, uh, what ahas have you had, I guess, if you, as you've been involved in that? It's really fascinating to me because it's personal. 
Well, and we'd love to be able to help you in any way we could. So what happened is that um, I started the job in 2018, but it was funny how I got there. I was running a self-regulatory initiative for 16 food and beverage CEOs. We made the first commitment with Michelle Obama, which was a reduction of calories in the marketplace and reformulating the products in the marketplace. And in 2012, I get this phone call about a merger of a new organization. And boy, Lisa, you'd be fantastic leading it. And I said, well, I'm doing something else right now. I can't do it, but thanks very much. And then 14 months later, I get a phone call from a second headhunter and they said, oh, yeah, everything didn't work out the last search. We didn't do the last search. Somebody else did, but everybody's put your name in the hat. They say, this is perfect for you. And I said, well, I've got a job. I'm doing something already, but here's six names. Go off and conquer. And what ended up happening is the chief medical officer just kind of eased into being the CEO because they, they didn't end up really doing the, the second search. And so in 2018, I get yet another phone call and it was from a friend of mine who's a headhunter. He goes, yeah, there's this and yet another headhunting firm. So when you have three different headhunting firms calling you over a period of time and telling you you're perfect for the job, I said it was like biblical, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, oh, maybe I should listen, right? Yeah, the plot is actually coming. I can see the clouds forming. Exactly. And so when I talked to the search committee, I just, I had turned down a lot of jobs. I had flexibility to, to not take certain jobs. And I really wanted to find a place where I could make a difference. I wanted to find a place uh, where I was at in my life, where I could put my heart and soul into it and basically help one more group of people. And that is what motivates me. It motivates me to help solve a complex problem, to help solve it on behalf of, of the individuals who feel so strongly about the need for this thing to exist. And I had such a great appreciation for these families. They were families of children with food allergies. Uh, one of them, their child could only eat 15 foods. After he went through a, a, a therapy, he actually got up to 30 foods, but that's it. I mean, think about it. Think of your life revolved around only 30 foods and how challenging that was. And yet the parents had turned it into such a dynamic enterprise of all the money that they put into uh, research. And, and I, wanted to, I wanted to help them take all that investment that they'd put in and move it to the next level. Because again, that's what I do. I take things to the next level. And so it's just been wonderful. It's been wonderful for a couple of reasons. One is that um, I've worked in high tech. I worked in the food and beverage industry. I'd worked with agricultural companies. And now I'm able, and now I'm working with pharma and biotech, but because of where medicine has advanced, there's an integration across every single industry that I've worked with. So you have gene editing and agriculture, you have uh, product reformulation with food and beverage, the use of AI uh, that allows you to understand what the impact will be of that reformulation, uh, pharma and biotech are doing things ranging from medical foods to biologics. And so it's truly a very exciting space. I've just absolutely just wake up energized at the level of creativity and innovation that's coming into, into the system in ways that I can help remove barriers from moving that innovation to the consumer. Yeah, I think a lot of people look at our resumes and think, how did you go from that to that to that? But for <laughs> us who've lived it, it's so easy to see. You can see how, you know, I went from selling into sports into education into family business and it's like well it doesn't seem to make sense to others but when i look at it it's like well that taught me this and this taught me that and that's what got me that's what connected the dots so i, I think that's what i hear you saying is that you know so you're 19 years old you go back I'm, I'm, now let's wind the clock back for a second it's the early okay. 80s and you're now working or asked to 
joined the Reagan administration at the White House. I, I'd be curious to hear how that came about and just just the ahas that had to come almost every day in that kind of role. Well, when I was 19, I was recruited into something called the Student Liaison Officer role at the Department of Education. That's where I started in the Reagan administration. And my job, I was putting myself through college, and my job was to explain to students why we were privatizing student loans and why it would actually be advantageous to them to have student loans privatized. And that was my, my job. That's I went around the United States talking about privatization of student loans. And, uh, and that was new during the Reagan administration. It was something that was a key initiative of theirs. I happened to later go off to the Pentagon where I was working under Casper Weinberger mm -hmm. and uh, on what are called dual use products, products that have military use and civilian use, like semiconductors, supercomputers at that point yeah. in time. And Weinberger announced his resignation. And I get this phone call from the guy I'd shared the office with when I was 19. He goes, hi, this is Eric. Um, I'm going to be leaving my job at the White House and taking this other really cool job. Do you want my job? Well, you know, I was, I was young, but I wasn't stupid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You don't go hand in hand sometimes, right? Yeah. So I go like, when do you want me to start? He goes, you can start in three days. Can you come over to the White House right now from the Pentagon? Your boss is leaving. Boss being, he was many steps above me, but I was still a political appointee and that meant change. He goes, your boss is leaving. Your job's going to change. Come over, interview, take my job. And so that's actually how I got over there. And it was a fascinating time. I served in presidential personnel, which is basically recruiting cabinet members and sub-cabinet members and political appointees uh, into the administration. And I did a thousand interviews during that time period. Uh, I had the opportunity to then work with the transition team between President Reagan and President Bush, uh, worked on the inauguration with Shirley Temple Black, uh, yeah. doing protocol. And so that was my first introduction to protocol and diplomacy. And then I literally the next morning, I put my ball gown in the closet and I flew to the deserts of Arizona to start a job at Intel Corporation. And funny story, I was in Arizona and my boss, my boss at the time, Craig Barrett, he goes, you know, don't you want to come out and see what Arizona looks like? I'm like, oh, it's a resort town. Yeah. He goes, yeah, but, and this was not the resort area of Arizona. It's where the manufacturing area was, Chandler, Arizona. Yeah. So I wake up the next morning. I'm so excited. I get in my car to drive around and see what my neighborhood looks like because I got in around midnight and there are tumbleweeds going by. Yeah. And there are strip malls. It was they just had the market collapse, the the, you know, and, and they'd had a total collapse in Arizona. And these strip malls had all been built and they were empty and they look like the walking dead. And yeah. then all of a sudden these sheep are crossing the road. I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, I'm not know, in DC anymore, am I? Yeah. Exactly. I've been working at the White House. I've been dressing up all of the time. And what in the world did I get myself into? So it was a it was an interesting period. Yeah, you've experienced a little bit of change there. So how did you adapt? <laughs> what did it take to adapt to that eventually? How did you go from wow, I'm total culture shock, obviously, because you're East, you're an East Coast girl yeah. and you've been there in the you know hustle and bustle of DC and now you're in, you know tombstone arizona so to speak i was there was nothing in chandler it's a very big city now but there was nothing there when i was there and i dressed my first day of work i dressed up like i always did to go into the white house and maybe after the first week somebody took me aside at intel and said you know lisa 
if you want to fit in, we advise that it's okay for you to dress down. And I can't begin to tell you as an East Coast girl who grew up with pearls, uh, having right. to get myself adjusted to putting on blue jeans to go to work. Yeah. That was yeah. really tough. I will tell you after 15 years in Silicon Valley, I adjusted really, really well. I, I totally got sure. into it after that. Yeah. Um, but it was fascinating. I mean, I learned so much. And that's really the essence of the book was, as I said, I learned these manufacturing principles. Um, and I was in a factory. That's where I was and learning about statistical process control, learning about how you basically reduce cost and increase outputs over time, uh, learning about quality improvement processes, learning how to take all of those ideas and then apply them to problem solving, whether it was Craig's interest in K through 12 education, he was a senior vice president of manufacturing and later would become the CEO and, and uh, chairman of the board of Intel, um, but there weren't CSR programs then. So taking those, uh, those ideas and turning them into building a school on Intel property as a charter school that was part of a, a school district, uh, working with the CIA and redesigning export control processes. I got to do some really cool projects and yeah. it was it was a wonderful experience. When you think back about mentors in your life or those, I mean, obviously you're a very driven person, everything you've talked about so far and, and the hyper focus that we talked about a little bit ago. Who in your life, where did that come from? Was that just something you saw in your parents and some leader, a teacher, anybody even prior to age 19? I mean, we started at 19. Well, you didn't just land at 19. Something <laughs> happened prior to that that gave you that drive. Can you talk about that a little bit? So my, my dad built an institution from the ground up uh, that he basically started and built into an institution of 7,500 students, uh, a university. And, uh, and so that was my life, watching someone, an entrepreneur, build out an institutional structure. And my mother was interesting in that she had uh, done a couple of things. One is uh, for a period of time, she took in newborns who's, uh, who had been uh, taken away from their parents at birth because of abuse of other children. And she got into the process and ended up revamping the way the entire uh, adoption process and foster care process worked in Virginia. So not only did we have five newborns in our household over, over a five, or 13 newborns over a five-year period of time, but she also got an award, I think, from the governor for restructuring how foster care was managed. Uh, and then later, she was very involved with um, development and uh, the underground churches in Eastern Europe. And so as soon as the wall fell, she she uh, and her colleagues went to, I believe, Albania, Lithuania, Latvia. They were helping bringing in medical equipment. They were helping to arrange adoptions. Uh, they really helped with that first democracy building exercise that went on there. So I had two great role models. Uh, yeah. Obviously, my parents are the type that also like to solve problems. And, uh, and so I grew up with that. And I learned, you know, I always talk about the book talks a lot about my dad. Um, and actually, it was a letter from my father that I discovered. I'd, I'd had this letter, had been sitting on my desk, uh, but he died in the summer of 2019. Mm -hmm. And one of the things in his letter that he stated, and I talk about in the book, is he talks about challenging your crisis. And I, I was at Intel. I was going through a bad time. I'd gotten the letter many, many years ago, but I loved that letter so much. And I would bring it out whenever I had a hard time. And he would talk about how some of your biggest stumbling blocks will actually be your biggest stepping stones. Mm -hmm. And and that is where I started. That's why I started coming up with the idea for a book is, is after his death and rereading that letter a few times. Can you talk about any of those stumbling blocks that come to mind that you challenged that on? 
you know, I mean, part of it was being a being, you know, one thing you can't tell from Zoom, and there's a picture that went viral all over the internet, is that I have always been in a male environment, and I am five feet tall. And when I was at the Pentagon, I weighed 95 pounds. Okay. And uh, and literally, we're, we're during the Cold War, there weren't women at the Pentagon, uh, there weren't that many women in the military. And so even the chairs were structured for people that were bigger than I am. And, uh, and one of the things, in fact, that Craig taught me is how to speak with facts, how to speak with facts, so that when you walk into the room, yes, they will dismiss you because you look so small. And this picture going around the internet was uh, me with a group of, of one-star generals and, and uh, Fulberg colonels, and I'm in the middle of them. I'm 28 years old. I look like I'm 12. There's <laughs> like, Lisa. Um, but so that was always a continuous challenge. And it's one reason I like to work with women and girls is I like to impart to them all the things that I learned and how to be taken seriously, how to use the facts in order to craft your argument, how you don't have to be the smartest person in the room, but you have to have done your homework and make sure that when you open your mouth, that you are making a recommendation based on facts. Sure. And so Throughout that process, I think I had run into that at Intel and my dad, you know, was like, okay, challenge your crisis, pick yourself up, dust yourself off, you can do this. And, uh, and it's something that uh, just I, I continue to recognize is important to making me move forward. I love that challenge your crisis. That's a, that's a great, uh, great phrase. I'm really big on a little, you know, maybe it's the marketing person in me. Maybe it's just, I, I hear certain words. I grew up with, you know, parents who inspired and drove me as well. My mom was an English major and a therapist. My dad was, you know, retired as the VP of HR of a multi-billion dollar manufacturing company. So certainly I watched them rise up as well and watch them challenge many crises as well. Think about the last time you bought a gift for a friend or family member. The better you know them, the easier it was to get them something memorable, right? Well, it's the same for brands that want to deliver memorable customer experiences. The better they know their customers, the more likely they are to establish strong relationships, exceed expectations, and build loyalty. At McKenzie, that's what we do. We empower brands to understand and connect with the person behind the purchase, so their customer experiences are meaningful, unique, and truly valuable. Learn more at McKenzieCorp.com. You've seen, obviously the title of the book is Turnaround, and I look back at your history from age 19 through a couple of different White Houses, Pentagon, a shift 3,000 miles away to the desert, literally, not just figuratively. Um, when did you start realizing that you had a knack for turnaround? Whether it was, it was when I was in, Yeah, it was when I was in Intel. I mean, I was Craig's troubleshooter. And so he would go, go figure that out. Just go figure it out. I don't have time for it. It doesn't fit anywhere in the company. Just figure it out. And so whether it was Intel had a, um, uh, there was a period of time where semiconductors were being, chips were being basically stolen off of docks in Hong Kong and other places. Since I had my security clearances, you know, he sent me off to the CIA to talk to former colleagues there and at Defense Intelligence and um, and to deal with issues around uh, export controls. And one of the things that was going on is as as the technology, which, you know, it's unbelievable today when you think about what we controlled for sale to the Soviet Union, because you know, we had supercomputers that were size of a house right. um, and now it's our telephone. Yeah, exactly. um, 
but the, the export control process wasn't designed to keep up with innovation. And so that was really my first uh, my first turnaround of, of documenting a different process for how to do something so that you could retain national security interest while simultaneously uh, laying the groundwork for companies to make the sales that they need to. And so that's I learned that's where I learned it. And, and actually, my, my last big project at Intel was Intel had lost its first investment in a major consumer branding campaign. And back then, nobody was doing consumer branding in high tech. And yeah. for those of us who are older, Intel had invested in something called the x86. And so they would have a 386 on the billboard, a big red X through it to get people to upgrade to a new technology. And they lost a trademark after a seven-year lawsuit. So I was sent all over the world to figure out what did we do wrong? They were getting ready. They hadn't announced it yet, but they were getting ready to invest billions of dollars in the Intel Inside program, the first really big ingredient brand program in high tech. And they sent me to uh, British Airways, Lego, uh, Louis Vuitton, and a French uh, tele you know, a, a telephone company. And they said, just ask them what they do. <laughs> and oh. so it was really fun. I, in fact, yeah. I got to go to Benetton too. And so I'm nice. going there and meeting with these people. I'm like, well, how do you, you know, British Airways, how did you manage your trademark? What are the processes that you use? And what I realized after I, I made the changes Intel Inside was, was rolled out, I thought, well, heck, if Intel is having a problem moving from business to consumer because the way in which they manage things is not the way you have to manage it to protect your assets in the consumer world. Maybe this is a business. And yeah. so I left my job and I talked to people and I went around and said, you're going to have this problem. I went to HP, I went to Oracle, I went to Cadence, I went to Quantum, you're going to have this problem. Well, nine months later, nobody had the problem. And I thought I was crazy and my parents were wondering why I left this great job. Yeah. And literally in February of 1994, my phone started ringing off the hook. And I went from having zero, I had one client because I didn't leave Intel without one client in hand, which was Trident, which made GPS systems, but I only had one client. And I went from having one client to quickly hiring 20 uh, women to work for me. And we built a multi-million dollar operation. Helping Silicon Valley move from business to business to business to consumer enterprises. I work with nonprofits and for-profit organizations. I know you've done a lot of turnaround with both. Is there something similar or any dramatic differences that you see between a for-profit and a nonprofit when it comes to the turnaround? Yeah, fundamentally, it gets into basic issues, and I'm sure you see these also, which is uh, we have uh, people, like, like I said at the beginning, people have added things on. One of the examples I talk about in my book is it doesn't matter if it's business, government, or philanthropy, and I've run turnarounds in each. You sort of walk in the door, and initially, you see the beautiful architecture that built the house. But then you kind of look at it and like there were this weird porch to the side and there's this odd window. And for some reason, somebody decided a chimney fit there. And all that beautiful architecture was messed up because someone moved away from the architectural design. They moved away from the core purpose of what that house was supposed to be. And so I see that in everything. Um, the second thing is that we look at the economic, what we call the economics of the business, right, which is whether or not um, the way in which it's constructed is going to be sustainable. And I talk maybe again, because of my manufacturing experience, I talk a lot about constants and variables and they're constants, the things that stay the same and then the variables and you wanna get rid of the variables. Sure. But I think the last thing I have found repeatedly is hubris. 
which is uh, that people um, take themselves a little too seriously and they forget about the fact that they are a temporary steward of the institution, yeah. temporary steward. We are at an institution for a period of time. We, we receive a paycheck and therefore we're the temporary steward of that institution to do its core competency and to meet the needs of its consumers, its, its uh, you know, patients or whoever it might be as its constituency. And, and when you forget that and you start putting self-interest above the institution's interest, that's when things go to hell in a handbasket. And that's the situation that I've walked into many, many times. Yeah, you don't want people, customers in particular, to be loyal to the person. You want them loyal to the brand and the organization because that person could shift. And we've seen a right. lot of shift in, in, well, in our lives, but especially in the last couple of years. And uh, yeah, it's flattering to hear someone say, oh, I'm only here because of you. Well, that's yeah. great. And that's wonderful. It makes me feel good for a minute. But it's like, well, what if I'm not here? What's going to happen to this organization? Do you, I'm curious. A lot of the work that I do is with family-owned companies. I, I, we haven't, I haven't seen this in your bio or talked to you about it, so I, I run the risk of asking you a question. You just saying no. But have you worked with family-owned companies? Have you seen anything in family businesses that strikes you maybe differently? I've worked a lot with family philanthropies and you know that there is um, certain philanthropists have the philosophy that by the third generation, it's not doing what the original person set it up to do. Right. And so either I see that manifesting itself, that it's really become something that was not the purpose for which it was originally founded. Or what I see is that the family, uh, has so subdivided all of the decision-making that they're accomplishing nothing. And what I mean by that is some of them go on rotations where it's, you know, 2022 is your year to make the biggest decision about the investment on, and, you know, 2021 is my year. And each of us get this small piece. And the reality is when you break things up so much, and this was actually goes back to when I was at Intel with the K through 12 stuff, Intel, what was happening is there were no CSR programs, right? There was no foundation, none of that stuff sure. existed. And what Craig saw is that um, in, you know, out of the goodness of their heart, site manufacturing managers were letting people off to go volunteer in a school. And then somebody would write a check to that school. And then somebody would write another check to this institution, K through 12. And he goes, just, he goes, I keep hearing about all the stuff we're doing, but what are we accomplishing? And he said, can you just go figure out how much money we just wrote checks for? Mm -hmm. And can you go just figure out how much time people were taking off? And what he recognized, and the same thing I think that family philanthropies need to recognize, is that if you want to have an impact, you need to have two, three, but if, depending on what size you are, objectives, maybe it's one objective that you all agree and you build a five-year strategy and you have milestones and you, and you recognize that if you can make large-scale investments with certain strings attached and management processes in place and criteria for selection, you can move the needle on elements that are very critical to people. And so those are the two places that I, I just shake my head at when I have conversations with different families. So being very strategic, not just random, yeah. what I'm hearing you say, yeah, I have a strategic goal. I know a lot of the ones that are most successful organizations that I work with out here in California, you know, they're focused on Habitat for Humanity because of this or Children's Hospital because of that or Ronald McDonald House because of an experience. And so 
<laughs> yeah, then that's great. If it's just ra you know, random giving is great. We sponsor a little league team or we do this, that and the other, but it's not getting you closer to your objective is what I'm hearing you say. It's, it's not. And, and also small, small dollar amounts, they don't make a difference. And yeah. I, and I don't mean that in a, you're going to have people like sending in negative notes to the yeah. podcast. They do no. make a difference. Like you want to give a small dollar amount to your local school. It does make a difference because it empowers the children, helps their education, whatever they can get the you know scoreboard at the game. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. but if you want to have impact, you really need to pull all the money together into large scale investment and you need to also clearly understand what it's going to take to create change. And I, I saw this with diversity, equity, and inclusion. I do a lot in access, and I've been very heavily involved in building. My team built a strategic plan for access to care. We wanted to solve the problem for the population of individuals within our patient community that didn't have access to an allergist, didn't have access to the therapies and diagnostics. And what I discovered through that is just how much money we've wasted yeah. in the manner in which we've put money forward. And, um, and we really need to understand the different specific factors. Some of them aren't terribly sexy. It's a matter of understanding that um, it takes somebody maybe two bus rides and they have to get off a minimum wage job five times. And they've got to also pay somebody to take care of their mother and their child. Therefore, let's talk about how to solve the problem for that individual. And so I, I think we we have good hearts, but yeah. we don't always think through the deliverables required to solve the problem. And that's what I try to do in everything that I'm involved with. So speaking of that, how do you decide how you and your husband or you put where do you put your time, your talent, your treasure and so forth? I know you've been so involved with nonprofits. We've talked about FAIR. We've talked yeah. a little bit about the Health Weight Commitment Foundation briefly. We can go there more if you'd like. But um, what is it that I, I heard? I've heard a pastor and others say, figure out what breaks your heart. And then that's where you should dedicate your time. So if that's true for you, what breaks your heart? And where do you yeah. put your time? So um, I spend a lot of my time with women and, and girls. Uh, you know, I was on the board of Girl Scouts of the USA. What Jim and I do is if I go onto a board um, and he's been so busy with work and other health issues that he's not served on as many philanthropic boards. But when I go onto a board, that's the place. Like we're making the commitment. This is where all the Gable money is going for X period of time. And that's what I'm raising money for. Um, I was on the board of Boys and Girls Clubs of America. And I uh, as a member of the National Trustees. And I have to say, uh, both organizations are stellar organizations, both do fantastic things for youth. I'm getting ready to retire in the spring and I'm gonna focus on leadership and character uh, because right now, and so tying all these pieces together from the book, from um, writings that I've done, from work that I've done with uh, democracy building, as well as uh, with these two, um, with Boys and Girls Clubs and Girl Scouts, is I'm just very worried. I want to make sure that um, I can help identify, I've always focused on identifying that young person who can be the leader and assume the mantle of leadership that we need for our next crisis. And we're, we're going to be going through crisis after crisis. This is not going to be an easy path forward. And so if there's a way that I can take everything that I've done and invest it in helping people understand that they can assume the mantle of leadership. And it doesn't matter if you are from, it doesn't matter if we saw this during COVID, it doesn't matter if you're a truck driver, a grocery store worker, you're a physician's assistant, whatever your job is, you can be a leader. And right. so how do we get people to understand that 
that we live in a democracy that will allow them to assume the mantle of leadership when that moment happens. And we saw 9-11. I mean, you know, I was just, I, I made myself stop reading it. When I was reading the transcript from Flight 93, that's the worst example because it is an example of a group of people who had no commonality. They're getting on an airplane. How many times do you get on an airplane? You don't know anything about these people. And yet what they did. And so if there's a way to, to empower people, we're so depressed right now. We're so losing our focus that we have the freedom to do it ourselves. And so how do you do that? And so that's, that's, you can tell I get passionate about it. No, that's, that's great. Yeah. That's, yeah. One of my questions was going to be what drives you. And you just answered that before I yeah. asked it. Yeah. It's, I actually teach a, a sports leadership class right now at a local university here in Southern California. And the question I asked my students the other night is, is it easier to lead in easy times or hard times and why? And, you know, most people will say the same thing. Well, easy times, we kind of put it on cruise control and modify things here and there. I look at sports a lot because that's a big passion of mine. Every team has a different leader at different moments of the game or season and what have you. But it's in that crisis and we're in crisis, not just in this pandemic that we're in or hopefully knock on wood coming out of, but there's three types of people. There's going into crisis, in crisis, or coming out of crisis. So there's always going to be a a difficult time to lead. Any leaders, world leaders, or, or famous or not famous, living or dead, that you look at and go, wow, that's my example of leadership? Well, you know, I'm still a fan of Ronald Reagan. I, I yeah, still believe that I, I've worked for a lot of presidents, but I have to say, I still think Ronald Reagan um, was the best one. I mean, when you think about the 70s, and unfortunately, my husband keeps reminding me that everything we're going through right now is kind of like 1977, 78. Right. And it's going to be a long way to 1981. Yeah, we're going to one yeah. But, you know, I mean, you know, he he ended the Cold War and I was I was part of that. Not I was a little tiny, tiny, tiny little cog in the wheel um, at the Pentagon and then at the White House. Uh, but the the changes that he made and and again, because my parents worked with the underground churches and also I ended up doing some volunteer work with uh, the Jewish communities who were fleeing, you know, finally flooding into the United States after the wall collapsed and even before the wall collapsed, people that were that escaped. Um, you really do recognize how individual leadership and empowering that. I mean, he we had this term captive nations, which was all the individuals uh, in the Eastern Bloc. And part of our job in the Reagan administration was giving them the tools to eventually win the Cold War. And so I would say Ronald Reagan. Yeah, I, I would uh, tend to agree with you on that. Absolutely. Hello, my name is John Royce Lynch, founder and CEO of PCMA Private Client. As a former professional surfer and native of Southern California, I've always enjoyed Wahoo's fish tacos. When the pandemic hit, the response by Wahoo's was unparalleled, creating the California Love Drop by supporting frontline workers and those in need. On behalf of the PCMA private client community and our amazing team, it is an honor to be able to support this noble effort. To lend a hand and to learn more, please visit californialovedrop.org. What would you say, you, you've accomplished a lot. And I'm just, I'm, your background is amazing and I'm so excited to, to even dig deeper and learn more about you after this conversation and to read Turnaround. If you were to look back now at your career, you know, you talked about retirements on the horizon. When all is said and done and you are out giving more of your time out to the, you know, dedicating your time, your talent, your treasure and those resources into those really major, major causes that, that light your fire. What are you most proud of that you've accomplished in your career? The people I've helped. 
I, I have now, I'm now old enough that there are people that I have been mentoring um, going back to 2004 and before. Um, and there are people I, uh, someone announced last night that I had started, and she was right. I mean, I guess in her mind, I was her mentor in 1994. Um, so watching the success of the individuals who I was able to remove a roadblock or give them the encouragement to go on and do the great and amazing things that they have done. I'm so proud of them. I really am. And I, I saw a couple of them during the last few days, people I haven't seen for a long time that I met at different paths and helped. And, and that's what, you know, I learned from my, my parents, they mentored and they helped so many people. You're building an army of successful people and that's, what's going to keep the world moving forward the way it needs to. And so uh, really mentoring. Yeah. We're not here for ourselves, are we? We're here for the other people around us. Yeah. And other people were here for me. I mean, you look, anybody, anybody who gets my book, what you're going to see is it's got the longest list of endorsements in the first couple of pages. And then at the end, it has the longest list of acknowledgements to the point I called the publisher. I'm like, well, how long can this section be? Uh, But, you know, part of um, people did it for me. And I talk about my personal team in my life. I've had this personal team that's been there for me. And, you know, they've been helping with the book, getting up to the bestseller list and, and, you know, cheering me along the way. And I'm, you know, you have to do that for other people. Yeah. What, uh, if you could give two or three bits of advice to people that are listening today, family, business leaders, women coming up in careers. My mom was a career counselor, mostly for women and her career out here. And uh, in the seventies and eighties, when a lot of women were really going, not so much back into, but entering the workforce. Um, she gave me some great advice on that. My dad has always given me really great advice throughout my life as well. Your opportunity now to maybe speak to a couple of people uh, out there who are where you were 25, 30 years ago, or maybe where you are today. Yeah. Any, any advice that you would you would offer up? Two things. Um, you know, my, my dad's favorite quote was Winston Churchill's speech, never give up. And he um, he used to give a lot of sermons and he and that was always his his focus is never give up, never give up, never give up. He went through a lot of challenges in his life and never, never stopped. And then I guess the second thing is what I was just talking about a minute ago. We live in the greatest country on Earth. You can be a leader. Stop huddling in your house and being afraid of what's out there. Yeah, COVID's been difficult, but the reality is you have the capacity to make a change that will impact people in your neighborhood, your church, your school, your community, your business. There is nothing prohibiting you from being part of solving the problem. And by doing so, that's going to empower you and it's going to make you feel more positive about life. And it's going to energize you in ways that being afraid aren't. So those are my two pieces of advice. I love that. I love a Churchill quote that I just heard the other day, too, on uh, I can't remember where I heard it, but uh, humorously, he said, never stand when you can sit and never sit when you can lay down. I use that one a lot, too. It's like, hey, I'm laying down because I can. So not not the most never, ever give up profound quote from Churchill, obviously, but certainly one that I I like from time to time. So retirement on a couple more questions and I'll let you go. Um, Retirement on the horizon, future goals. I mean, what's that thing out there yet that Lisa Gable hasn't done that's hanging out there that you can't wait to go do? Well, I want to write another book. Um, And so that is a goal is to keep writing. I've, you know, this is the first book I've written, but I've published a lot of articles for years and uh, blogs and other things. And so I'd like to write another book. Uh, And 
from a business standpoint, we had talked about it a little bit, you know, I, I hope to advance on the business side, food is medicine, there's so many exciting things happening. And so being able to do that through being part of the innovation cycle, corporate boards, helping entrepreneurs succeed in that area. That's just a, a in addition to the other work that I want to do in leadership. And the great thing is about retirement and also the fact that I still do a lot and I don't really stop. It's just being able to pursue three different things at full scale. Lisa is totally fine with me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I talked to a woman a few years ago that was retiring where I work and, and um, I asked her, I said, so what are you going to do now? And her response, even though it was, I think meant as a joke was so profound that I wrote a blog article about it. And I've quoted this a lot and I'll do it again now. And her response was simply not come here. And meaning that's I've got all these projects and things going on. All that's going to change in my life is I'm just not, not going to have to come here every day anymore. I love it here, but now I get to go spend more time in my passion projects and the things that drive me and travel and vacations and so forth. You see, I, I would imagine that the answer to this question is yes, because I know you're going to get asked a lot if you haven't already, and I know you have, to get back out on the speaking tour, whether it's on Zoom or hopefully in person, just to talk about your book and future books. I can see you out here talking to a lot of my clients about turning their businesses around, whether it's because of the impact of COVID or poor leadership or transition, family businesses a lot, you know, the, the, the now generation, those leading the company versus the next generation, not that they necessarily need to turn around, but there's always a shift, you know, yeah. loyalty to the previous owner, not so loyal to the next or vice versa. Um, do you envision that? Do you envision those, you know, those I, 18 I months in a row out on the road? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I want to because I, I get a lot of energy from talking to people, right? I mean, I am that person that prefers to do the Q&A more so than I do giving the speech because I just love... I love helping people real time solve their problems and talking to them and encouraging them. And uh, one of the things that, you know, I, the end of the book, you'll see it is called End on a High Note. So one place where I've, I've always spent a lot of time is helping people figure out their next stage of life, that third stage of life. I've helped a lot of individuals who wanted to be ambassadors or they wanted to go into government service or they wanted to go onto a corporate board. Um, so the degree to, again, be able to help people think about what they want to do next yeah. is a place that you know it's uh i've seen the impact of when people have focused on that next stage of life and really bringing these amazing talents and sometimes a lot of money into the process and doing good with it yeah awesome well i'm gonna we're gonna end on a high note in a moment i mean this whole thing has been on the whole conversation that's why i do this podcast I, the whole reason that i started this your episode number 73 now since january of 2020 is I too, I, I, I get my energy from talking to people and now why not record these conversations and share them with the world and it's been just probably in my career and I've had a lot of really great things that I've been able to accomplish and more things out there as well I'm 57 so I still have a, a little bit of highway left in front of me, I hope knock on wood, but um, ultimately it's the conversations with people that, that inspire me and light the fire under me as well. What's the best way for people to reach you, find your book, talk to you about sure. bringing you out to speak to their organizations? Well, um, I've got a website, turnaroundbook.com, where you can contact my folks about speaking and also I'm affiliated with different speakers bureaus. Mm -hmm. You can find the book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, Colbo, uh, Books A Million, any bookstore. Although if you walk into an indie bookstore and buy the book, apparently that's even better for uh, my, my book numbers because we want to both support independent bookstores and we want people right. to actually buy real books in person. Um, and then you can also follow me on Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn and and on Facebook and Instagram, it's Lisa Gable author. And on LinkedIn, it's just Lisa Gable. 
Awesome. I think that's how I found you. Yeah. Um, I read, I, I saw an article that you wrote and I saw the topic turn around and that drew my attention because that's where a lot of my attention is now with clients that I work with. All right. So the, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. And I just, I can't wait to hear the feedback from this interview. We will put those links on in the notes on this show as well. So people can reach you directly by going to the From the Heart website, as well as um, on the notes from this particular episode. So as we talked about before, and you can see in my name at the bottom corner of the screen here, the last name being Hart, I really try to in this podcast and in all the conversations, really, when I talk to clients or anybody, just one off, you know, get to why people do what they do. So if I were to pose the question at the end of this conversation, Lisa Gable, what's in your heart? Want me to answer the question? Sure. What's in, yeah, you betcha. Just, you know, whatever comes to your heart, not your mind, but your heart. Sure. Commitment and diligence is, uh, is what defines me. I'm very committed. I'm very diligent. I care, care, care deeply. And I know that I have been given the most amazing opportunities. And if I can use the relationships that I have to make a difference, then that's my obligation.